If you would, please open your Bibles with me to John chapter uh, 19. My voice is gone. Not because I'm sick, but because of lovely allergies and all the sneezing. God bless all of you at home who are watching. Love you. <clears throat> it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The Gospel of John is, is really unique in so many ways as we are have been going through it. Um, John not only saw Jesus' life, he saw his miracles. He has witnessed now his trial, his crucifixion, and now his death up front and in person. And possibly John was on one, of, one of the only disciples to be there right at the foot of the cross, along with the other ladies. But he had an eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion and his death. It seems like that as we've been watching John follow, he had access to the high priest. He was in the actual trials. He was in the inner rooms, and, and now he's right at the foot of the cross. And here in John chapter 19, we're just getting this firsthand account of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And as John repeats throughout his gospel, uh, his aim in writing this account is in verse 36, so that you also might believe. That's his whole reason why he's writing these, this firsthand account of which he had. You know, we can have total confidence as believers uh, that this is not made up. This is not fictitious, as so many say. Um, there were witnesses, eyewitnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection, as we will see, of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. We have a sure faith church and we are reading an ancient document of a man who was there at the cross witnessing these things come about. And so two weeks ago, we left off in verses 25 through 30 where Jesus' mother, uh, his mother's sister, uh, which is possibly John's mom, 
um, and as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we all know is John. They're there at the foot of the cross, and they're standing there, and John recounts his personal interactions with Jesus on the cross as Jesus is hanging there, getting ready to give up his spirit. He looks down at his son, at, at John, and says, uh, you know, hey, this is now your mother. Mother, this is now your son. And John took Mary into his own home and took care of her as if he was his own mother from that point on. And then at, from that point, John tells us what he saw and heard in those final moments in verses 20 through 30. We know John, Jesus says that John was there on the cross and he said, knowing that all was finished, it was complete. He said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus uh, said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is what Jesus did. He gave up his spirit. And we'll see that in contrast to the other two who were there. And so John was an eyewitness of the crucifixion and now the death of Jesus Christ. He is watching firsthand Old Testament prophecy some a thousand years before being fulfilled right before his very eyes. Think of Isaiah 53 verses 7 through 8, for example, which foretold of the future Messiah a thousand years off, unknowing to Isaiah. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John witnessed Jesus' trial. He witnessed all the accusations falsely coming before him. And Jesus did not defend himself, although he had every right to. But he kept himself silent for you, for me because he was going to take the sins of the world upon himself. He's fulfilling the Father's plan. John witnessed that come about. Isaiah goes on. Uh, he says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land, uh, off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And so Jesus was taken away in oppression and judgment and stricken for people. And John witnessed this happen. The innocent being judged unrighteously by an unrighteous group of people, obviously. Or just a few verses before in Isaiah 53, 5, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Amen. Written a thousand years before the cross yet speaking in detail about the one who was pierced for us. And John and the others saw firsthand that the Messiah was pierced. They saw how he was crushed. They saw how he was brutally treated. And all the prophecies, and if you look at the other Gospels, that's what they keep going back to as they marvel at the fact that the Scriptures foretold what was going on. And so many have been so critical of the Scriptures, saying, ah, they were rewritten and all this type of stuff. And when you get to situations like you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, where in 1948 or somewhere around there, you have a, 
a, a shepherd who's throwing rocks and he throws rocks and it goes into a cave somehow and, and he hears a breaking sound and inside those jars they found the scrolls of Isaiah a thousand years before any other manuscripts that they had have. And guess what the difference was between those manuscripts and the ones that were a thousand years later were nothing. And here we are reading out of Isaiah about the Messiah. And so witnessing in person the Son of God, giving up his spirit, watching him say it, watching him giving up his life. And then John tells us what's happened as we pick up today in verse 31. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked that Pilate, uh, that, Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. If you recall, all this is happening uh, during the feast of Passover. Everybody remember that? This is, this is all happening, although we've like been having probably like a four-month-long feast in, in, the, in these verses here. But it's been happening during the feast of Passover, which was a week long, and, and they actually celebrated uh, the meal of the Passover on that Friday night at sundown, which also coincides with the Sabbath which happens at sundown. From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is the Sabbath. Well, that's when they celebrated the Passover that night. And so it's Friday afternoon now, and the day of preparation's happening. Everybody's getting all their stuff ready because they can't work on a Saturday. They're also getting ready for the Passover meal. The animals are being slaughtered. And because John is uh, writing possibly to maybe Ephesians at the time, we don't know, but he's writing to a group that might not know um, the background and the culture of uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish customs. Uh, John uh, basically lets them know, hey, this is a high holy day for us. This is what was going on. He lets them know it was the Sabbath. And so on that Friday, as people are preparing, as the sun's about to go down soon, we keep in mind also that it is during this time, right there on Friday, that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. They were being slaughtered for that Passover meal. And it just so happens that at that very time, the Passover lamb was slaughtered outside of the city. The Passover the lamb whom John says would take away the sins of the world. The one whose finished work, the ones whose blood put on the doorpost of someone's heart, so to speak, would cause them the wrath of God to pass over them. And at the same time, fulfilling the Passover, fulfilling the Sabbath in that Jesus did the work that we could never do. And in him, we have a true Sabbath rest. We have true peace in Jesus Christ. And any of you who have known the Lord and have let him be Lord of your life and you've been born again, you know that and your sins have been forgiven and he is our righteousness. And we rejoice. Now, because the next day was a Sabbath, the Jewish leaders, they didn't want anyone to be hanging on the tree because, you know, they were following the law, obviously. With everything we could about their Messiah, right? They were following the law. And so in Deuteronomy 21, 22, it says that nobody should hang on a tree overnight. That's, that, you just can't do that. Uh, you can murder your Messiah, but don't let anybody hang on a tree. You know, don't do that. Now the Romans, they didn't care how long people hung around. They actually kind of liked it because as that was a sign, don't mess with Rome, right? And so what happened is the 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 priests, they didn't want to have this going on. They wanted 
everything to be legal, especially during the Passover, didn't want to have dead bodies hanging around, all that stuff. They asked, they went to Pilate that they would break the legs of those who are being crucified. It would make their death go quicker. It's pretty graphic, but the reason they would ask for this is when a person was crucified, if they didn't die from the absolute trauma of being nailed uh, to a tree, and obviously in Jesus's case being scourged and whipped, uh, they would die from uh, suffocation. And that's the idea that as uh, they were nailed there on the cross and stretched out and their knees were slightly bent, um, it would become increasingly taxing to breathe. And so what you would need to do is you'd need to pull up with your hands and push up with your feet in order to kind of catch your breath. And then you'd kind of go back down into your slump. Well, eventually that, that you wore out and you died of suffocation. It was brutal. So people would be there for days, starving, nailed, suffering, and all these types of things. And so in order to quicken this up, the Romans would take a Roman mallet, a, a big metal mallet, and they go and they break the legs of those people who were crucified if they needed to speed it up so they couldn't push up anymore and it would cause them to suffocate quickly. And so that's exactly what happened, verse 32 tells us. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Pretty graphic stuff. First-hand account of what was going on. The others don't have this account. John is there. He's watching. He sees all this happen. He sees the legs being broken. He sees the, pierce, the, the spear being thrust into Jesus' side and the water and the blood come out. So when they came to Jesus, they came to one and the other. They were already dead. One of those people we're going to be able to see in heaven, amen? One of those thieves repented on the cross and Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to see that, brother in the Lord, amen? What a picture of the way the world is. Jesus, and you've got people who believe and don't. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And so to make sure, a Roman soldier takes a long spear and they thrust it up into Jesus' side, most likely going through there, piercing a lung and into his heart. And as they pull it out, there's blood and water that comes out. And the point of John's thing is that Jesus was dead. We can talk about medical and water and coagulation, but the point that John wants you to know is that Jesus was absolutely dead. And the reason why he wants you to know that he's absolutely dead is because they didn't take him down off the cross and suddenly he recovered and they patched him up and he came back. He was dead, but he rose again. Next week. Kind of a belated. Uh, uh, delayed Easter for us. But the reason that John is describing to us in such graphic detail, the reason why he's talking about all these things, about legs being broken, about uh, spears being thrust, is verse 35. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 
We don't believe in a fairy tale church. We don't believe in some pretend stories. We believe in truth, in real fact. And it's so vehemently opposed by those who don't know Christ because if it truly was what it is, they would have to reconcile their their lives to who Jesus Christ is. And many of you have come to that place where you realize there was a man, he lived, he was witnessed, he did the miracles, he proved that he was other than a, a man. He rose from the grave. And he commands now that all men would repent and receive eternal life. And he had specific witnesses and people who saw him, both both people who believed and people who didn't, they were all there, but we have witnesses, eyewitnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, witnesses of what went on. He who saw it, John says, born witness, I'm witnessing, his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may believe also. In a court, you're not supposed to believe hearsay. You can't get charged just because people heard something that you might have done, apparently. But if you have an eyewitness account, if that can be corroborated, then you've got an issue. That's, that's, that's evidence. That's truth. John is saying, I saw it. I believe. And I'm telling you this so that you also would believe. He's writing in this page, not knowing the ramifications of what God would do with this, that 2,000 years later in Walla Walla, we're reading his account. His gospel's going forward here on the internet and wherever his gospel is preached, that they might believe. John's saying he was a witness to this. He was witness to the prophecies that were fulfilled, to the miracles, the trial, the crucifixion, and his death. The Holy Spirit anticipates that those who would believe would not be basing their belief on myths, but upon truth. And John, as well as we who believe, do not believe just because John said it happened, but as John said, that it happened according to Scripture. Not just that he said it happened, but he said it, it happened according to Scripture. He falls back on the Word of God. John is emphatic about all this, and he says in three different ways. He bore witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. You see, we put our faith once again in the truth concerning Jesus Christ. You know, my grandfather um, just passed away. Um, He was a World War II veteran. And I remember spending quite a bit of time talking to him about what that was like and where he was and what boats he was on and where he went and how that was and what the time period was like. And when Pearl Harper happened, what was, what was that like? And, and I remember asking him all these uh, uh, things and, and he was speaking to me about a time and a place that I've never been, things I've never seen. And what he told me really happened. What he told me was true and is verified World War II is verified in history. We know that. And as that generation fades away, as that generation dies off, how do we know that World War II really happened? Were any of you there? 
Zero hands. How do you know that it happened? Oh, well, there's video. Well, what is video? What are these things we're talking about? They're accounts. They're people's stories. It's being verified. And this is John's medium of verifying along with the apostles. They wrote it down. They handed it to us. And it was preserved by God throughout the ages. And you can get into textual criticism and find out that it's rock solid. If you'd spend the time to do it. If you're doubting. And so we have stories written down in many cases. We'd only take John's account, as I said, in the same way. We take John's account in the same way, but, but we have other gospel accounts. We have other people who saw and witnessed all of this. We have church history. We have people who, know, who knew the disciples of John really early on. People who knew the disciples of the people who, who, who lived and, and heard their accounts and wrote down things. We have secular history recording these events, verifying that people are really around and they really did do what they did. Josephus talking about Jesus Christ being risen from the dead and what a stir that came up. We have a lot of things to fall back on. But John was a key witness in this. But John isn't calling us to believe just because he saw. He's calling it because of Scripture, church. And this is what we must fall back on always. We fall back on what the Word of God says. Don't be afraid of the critic. Fall back on what the Word of God says. God said this, And the enemy's retort has been from the beginning, from the garden, did God really say? That's his tactic. And the answer is, yes, he did. Stand on it. But John is calling us because he saw to believe, because not only did he witness it, but it was according to Scripture. Verse 36, check it out. For these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And he gives us two examples of how it was fulfilled. Not one of his bones were, will be broken. In verse 37, again, another Scripture will say that they will look on him whom they have pierced. So John is watching the Bible come alive right in front of him. Watching Old Testament scripture fulfilled in Jesus right before his very eyes. He's referring to these two different verses, just two. He and the disciples are just piling on all these Old Testament accounts. But the first was prophesied was the Passover lamb's bones wouldn't be broken. Otherwise, it would be an unacceptable sacrifice. And so that was one of them. Both in Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, penned somewhere around 1,500 years before Christ, before John's time. Uh, they both speak of the Passover lamb and how that sacrifice was to meet those standards and certain career, uh, criteria. And one of them was that the bones couldn't be broken. And we know that John st starts his gospel out by talking about John the Baptist's declaration when John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ walk towards him, what was his proclamation to John, uh, to, to, to the world? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When John saw Jesus Christ, he knew that he was the Lamb of God. He was the Passover Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. And the picture is that the Lamb, uh, as they're celebrating this whole week-long thing, they're looking back on their history when uh, God delivered them out of the bondage of slavery. And God did that through a series of judgments. And one of the judgments that was going to come upon Egypt and anyone who didn't have uh, 
wasn't covered, so to speak, is that they would lose their firstborn son. And so as I've shared with you before, God required that a lamb would be sacrificed and it would have to meet certain criteria. And that lamb would be sacrificed on, a, on that night. And he, they would sacrifice it. They would take the blood in a hyssop branch, by the way, which we just kind of read about. And they would put it on the doorpost of the home. And anyone who had that covering, the wrath of God would pass over them that night. And if not, they didn't. That's the picture. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the lamb, the Passover lamb, whose blood was shed that whoever believes upon him in faith, God's wrath passes over them. Amen. Jesus was that fulfillment of that prophecy. And both Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 say that the lamb's bones must be broken. Do you understand that if his bones were broken, he could not be the, the son of God? And so, both of the thieves are there. And they come to one, they come to the other. And when they saw Jesus Christ, they passed breaking his bones because he was already dead. And then John says, as he's watching this miracle, he goes to the second one. He goes, and not only were, did they not break his bones, but they pierced his side, which the scriptures said several hundred years before would happen. Zechariah, um, I think it's uh, Zechariah yeah, 12.10 the scripture says they will look on him whom they've pierced. Zechariah 12.10, which speaks of Israel wounding their shepherd. That when he comes back, they will all mourn on him whom they've pierced. That's the prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. And Revelation 1.7 really expounds upon this. It says in clarity, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth were wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So John sees the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10 as he's watching the spear go up and pierce him and pull out and the blood came out. He says, they're going to look upon him whom they pierced when he returns. This couldn't have happened any other way unless he was pierced. And he was. And all the world will one day see Christ. And so there's a prophecy that not only that he was pierced, that fulfilled that, but that that sets up a future prophecy that Jesus is coming back. And everybody's going to look on him. He was the Messiah. He was pierced and he is the son of God. And now John continues as we kind of close here. He shares with us the trustworthy eyewitness account. In verse 38, John says, after these things, after Jesus' death, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So John sees what happens on the cross, and now he tells us what happens afterwards. And he tells us there's a secret disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. He came to ask Pilate for the body. And we know of Joseph uh, from Mark 15, that he was part of the Sanhedrin, which is the same group that just convicted Jesus, the 70 rulers. He no, most likely dissented from that vote, along with probably Nicodemus, and who we'll see in just a second here. But he was part of them. We know that he's, he was rich. Matthew 5, uh, 5.25 says, and that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke 23.52 says, and John tells us here in verse 38 that he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. You know, although 
Although um, Joseph risked a lot coming to Pilate, John makes it clear that Joseph's uh, discipleship was in secret because of fear. He was afraid of what would happen to him if he was found out. If they found out that he was really a disciple of Jesus. John had more to say about secret disciples back in chapter 12. I would encourage you to look at that and un- underline it and circle it and pray about it. He says in chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, after speaking about Isaiah and those whose eyes would be blinded and all this stuff, he says, nevertheless, in verse 42, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, that is in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Secret disciples. Jesus warned in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And if it was adulterous and sinful then, what is it now? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. John tells us, that those who were secret disciples had a reason for being secretive and private concerning Jesus, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, they were these kinds of men. But here in John 19, seems like there's a change of heart, which I'm excited about. Any of you secret disciples out there? Any of you secret disciples at home? Take heart. Joseph, at his own personal risk, comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Verse 38 says, so he came and took away his body. And apparently secret disciples stick together. Verse 39, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, but about 75 pounds in weight. So Nicodemus brings these fragrant spices that were used to wrap dead bodies to suppress the odor. And uh, verse 40, And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so we have this picture of two secret disciples (laughs) who come out of the woodwork, to honor and to really just glorify Jesus Christ. May the Spirit encourage us this morning to openly and publicly proclaim and follow Jesus Christ in this wicked and adulterous generation of which we are part of. May he call you to seek his glory rather than the glory of men. Amen. And so in closing for now, verse 41, he takes us from the cross to the tomb. Now in the place where where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. John lets us know that the place was uh, where Jesus was crucified, the place where he was buried was real close together. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, as I mentioned before, uh, the traditional site of the garden tomb, 
uh, you just go a short distance away and there's a there's a hill that goes down and there's a Palestinian bus stop and on the side of the hill is a place that looks like uh, a place of a skull. It looks exactly like a skull on the side of a hill, just the rocks being carved out. And so it could very well be that it was it, it was very close and convenient. Remember, it's about to become sundown, Sabbath is happening, they're in a hurry. And so the crunch was coming and they took Jesus to the nearby place and laid him in the tomb. It's amazing as I look at this, as you look at this, how God was working through all these circumstances. He was working through changed hearts. He was working through time crunches. Anybody ever in a time crunch? He was working through someone's resources who was rich and had a tomb that didn't have, was used. Uh, he, he worked through Nicodemus bringing the spices and all these things going. God is at work to fulfill his plan in all of this. The convenience of the tomb nearby. Isaiah 53, which I've been quoting from a bit today, speaks of Joseph of Arimathea and his tomb a thousand years before the fact. Verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53 say, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, verse 9, the one we're focusing on, and they made his grave with the wicked. That is not a royal grave, a common grave. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, the rich man's grave among the wicked had been prophesied a thousand years before Christ, and here it was being fulfilled. The Lamb of God slain for you and me exactly according to the Father's plan, down to the very grave where it would be placed. Church, God is he's sovereign. He was sovereign then in those prophecies, down to the minutest detail. And God will make good on the ones, the prophecies to come. And God will also make good on the promises to his people down to the minutest detail. Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge the living. He's going to judge the dead. He's going to remove us from the presence, the very presence of sin from within and without. He's going to put us in a kingdom where righteousness will will be forever and ever and ever. You will not know sin anymore. Inside or outside. He's going to deliver us. Just as he said, we have a sure foundation, church. We not only trust in, in his death and his resurrection, but in all the promises. And as we look at this world and, and where it's going, and all these things. Don't lose heart. Put your eyes on Jesus Christ, who is our hope. He's always been our hope since we came to him. Put your eyes on him. Perilous times are coming, are here, just as he said would happen through the Apostle Paul in Timothy. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. 
slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not living good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. God said this would be the days that would happen in the end times. And I believe we've been in those end times since Christ was crucified. Progressively getting worse until the day he returns. But as we see all this play out, let's not get discouraged because we actually see what God said is coming about. Let's not get discouraged, church. Let's also heed the words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians 6, 7-10, through 10, which says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's be those who reap, in, who reap from the Spirit, who sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Amen? And he says right after that, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone, especially, he says, to those who are the household of faith. Just want to encourage you that God's word is sure and true. And just as Jesus died and all these things happened to fulfill prophecy, there are yet ones to come. And we are his church. We are his plan for this time, for this generation. We and all who have repented and believed. And God has called us not to go and march on behalf of political operations, but to be his representatives here on, on, on earth. Proclaim the gospel, live the gospel, do good to all. Be at peace with all men and trust the wrath to God who will judge righteously. And may many come to Jesus Christ through you and your stark difference to what this world is doing. May our mouths be a little less loud. May our actions be a little louder. May our words be peppered with the gospel. Realizing of where we've come from, of how sinful and broken we've been in the past and what grace God has lavished upon us. And with those hearts, God's placed you in families. He's placed you in businesses. He placed you in situations where you can proclaim Jesus all around. And you have a sure foundation and you have a sure Jesus, uh, a sure resurrection, a sure death. You have a sure gospel that you can proclaim. So may we go out this week and share his love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the, um, as we close that, that our faith would be evident in our character, Father, that you'd forgive us for words uttered that shouldn't be, Lord, for heart attitudes and things that are going on, Lord. We pray that we would go to you, Lord, in prayer and for injustice or whatever might be going on. And we ask that we would call to you and entrust ourselves to you. Lord, give us a love, Lord, that you had for lost sinners, Lord, as we love one another and love our enemies, Lord, and the world around us who need you desperately. Give us faith and courage, Lord, to speak your gospel with whatever gifting you've given us and abilities. 
I pray that, Lord, we would, you would forgive us for being secret Christians. You'd make us bold as lions in this generation, but soft-hearted, tender. And Lord, we ask for humility, God. We ask for patience, Lord, as we await the promise of your return. And so, Lord, we love you, and we want to love you in word and deed. We want to love and obey you, Lord Jesus. And so we give you all the glory and honor and worship. We praise you for this morning, praise you for this place, praise you for the wind and the lawn chairs and being outside together in your name. We praise you for the people, our brothers and sisters at home right now. We love them. We miss them. We pray for their health, Lord. We pray for their peace. And we just, we just worship you now as we go. And so it's in your name we've gathered, and it's in your name we petition you, God, in the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you all. See you next week. Be looking in the weekly email for any changes that might come if it's 115 degrees outside.